Happy Lord's Day, everyone. If you would, please turn to Psalm 92. This is a psalm about uh, worship, and uh, I thought, what, what better topic to talk about in Sunday school before our time of worship than one about worship? Um, the, uh, the heading says, uh, a song for the Sabbath, which is the, uh, especially since we're talking about the Old Testament time, the, the high point of the week, uh, the time of, of worship. Uh, this psalm is in uh, four stanzas, and so we're going to break this up into four sections. Uh, verses 1 through 4 uh, is the call to worship. Then verses 5 through 9 is the subject of worship. Verses 10 to 11 is the outcome of worship. And verses 12 through 15 is the future for worship. So that's sort of the structure we're going to go through this. Uh, using, all right, let's, let's read the psalm together. Psalm 92. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work, and the works of your, at the works of your hands I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord! Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know, the fool cannot understand this, that though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All evil, evildoers shall be scattered. But you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. So in that first verse, it is good to give thanks to the Lord. Uh, what a understatement to start a psalm with, um, of course it's good to give thanks to God, right? That's a, that's a fundamental truth, um, that God is worthy of our thanks and our praise. But I think we might all agree that we do need to be reminded of the fundamentals every once in a while, to go back to the basics, to remember uh, the, the basics of what uh, our life is about. And that's why uh, this is actually a, a relatively repeated line in different psalms. So for example, Psalm 147, 1 says, praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant, and a song of praise is fitting. Uh, also, Psalm 71, verse 22 says, I will also praise you with the harp for your faithfulness, O my God. I will sing praises to you with the lyre, O holy one of Israel. So here's a question. So we know that it's good to give thanks to the Lord, but why is it good to sing praises to God? So we know that the Bible tells us to do it, but why do we think it's good? What are some reasons? What are some, what are some reasons that we think it's good to give thanks to God? Any ideas? Yeah, right, for, for salvation, right? We've been given so many good things. Um, it's, good, it's good to remind ourselves of the good things that God has done. And obviously that's, that's happening in this psalm here too. 
Um, any other thoughts about why it's good to give thanks to God? Right, the, the, we, we have, we've received the richness of his grace because we haven't deserved any of those good things. Minimizing ourselves, maximizing his glory. Exactly. And we're, we're usually very good at putting focus in the wrong places. <laughs> we put the emphasis on the wrong syllable, so to speak, right? So we need to, we need to put our focus on God. He's the one who deserves our praise. You know, expressing our thankfulness to God not only glorifies him, that's good, um, but expressing our thanks, singing God's praise uh, edifies each other as well. Sometimes we provoke other people to, thanks, to, to thankfulness when we express our thankfulness as well. So not only does it glorify God, it edifies our brother and sisters as well uh, and encourages our own hearts uh, as we think about the things that we've received from God. And uh, especially in times where we're feeling a little low, we were, we, in that time, we should be praising. Um, now here's another question. When we think about Old Testament worship, because right, this is a psalm, this is from... Old Testament Israel. This was used uh, in, for the Sabbath. Um, when we think about Old Testament worship, what is it that we usually think of in our minds? Uh, what, what's, what's an activity that Old Testament Israel did that we usually associate with their, with their worship? Sacrifice, right? Burnt offerings being given. Um, if you read through those, uh, those passages, you know, taking the, the lobe of the liver, and the fat parts belong to the Lord, right? So we're thinking about these kinds of things. But do we see any of that in this psalm? I didn't see any. I don't know if maybe you have a different version than maybe I do, but uh, there's no sacrifice uh, in, this, uh, in this psalm. We know that the purpose of that sacrificial system wasn't to insist on itself, right? That the sacrificial system was pointing toward a truth uh, a, a fulfillment, right? It was a system of, of what we call types and shadows that was pointing toward an ultimate fulfillment. And who would that fulfillment be? But Jesus Christ. Uh, and actually, we, um, we see several occasions in Scripture where um, God is, is showing, even in the Old Testament, that those uh, sacrificial uh, activities were not the be-all, end-all. Um, if we go to Micah 6, if you want to turn there, we just read this passage recently, but I think it, it applies here. We're talking about the, the emptiness of, of some of Old Testament Israel's worship, where they were pretty much going through the motions, but their hearts were elsewhere. So Micah 6, uh, verses 6 through 8. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? And when we talked about this a couple weeks ago in Sunday school, we talked about there was some hyperbole involved there. But it's making a statement, and, and at least part of that statement is this, this trampling of, of the courts, this bringing of these animal sacrifices without the heart, without the intent to worship God, only to go through the motions, is completely empty and worthless. 
Actually, there's an even clearer passage on this topic. Um, I'll, I'll read it to you. Isaiah 1, 11 through 15, uh, where God says, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They've become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Right? The people were mired in idolatry. And we've been talking about that topic of idolatry recently, the last few weeks. Um, their hearts were with a false god, and they were only doing these things out of rote. Um, I can't even say rote obedience, because it's not obedient, right? The heart wasn't there. They weren't obeying the heart of that commandment. So we can clearly say that, that these things, these sacrifices, weren't good in an ultimate sense because they were only a means to an end, right? They were pointing toward Christ. They were pointing toward the true sacrifice. There were shadows that signified that substance that was to come. And that is why our worship and the worship that we're getting a taste of here is a sacrifice of praise, right? Because the sacrifice for our souls has already been accomplished in Christ, right? The 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 whole sacrificial system was uh, paying for sins, right? You, you commit a sin, you bring this certain offering. You do this wrong thing, you bring this kind of offering, whether it was uh, an animal or grain or oil, whatever. Uh, the final sacrifice for sins has already been made. So the sacrifice that we bring to worship is one of praise, not of remission. That's already been done for. In addition to that, so not only are we bringing a sacrifice of praise, but since this is for the Sabbath, right, and the Sabbath is a day of rest, um, we have to remember that the Sabbath, and including for us, our Lord's Day worship, it's not about being idle, right? There is something to do on the Lord's Day, um, but it's restful and it's restorative and it's called worship. And that's why we're here. So that is a thing to do on the Lord's Day. And in fact, actually, um, the first study Bible, the Geneva Bible, uh, has a note on this, which I think is, is kind of poignant. Um, Geneva Bible uh, on this uh, verse says, uh, it teacheth that the use of the Sabbath stands in praising God, not only in ceasing from work. Uh, then, of course, in this verse, we sing praises to your name, and we have to remember, they can sing praises to God's name because God has actually revealed his name to his people in Exodus 3.15. So we know God because God has made himself known. All right, verse two. To declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night. So this praise that we're bringing, and in this context, we're talking about singing, singing God's praise. We're not just singing about whatever it is we want to sing about, right? We can't make anything into praise. We're praising God for him, for what he has done, for who he is. And so there's specific content to this praise uh, given in this verse, the steadfast love of God and his faithfulness. Now, there's, in a sense, there's a connection between these two, and I wonder if maybe anybody would like to venture a guess as to how steadfast love 
which, by the way, is uh, how the ESV renders a, a Hebrew word, hesed, which has to do with God's covenant love for his people. So how does this steadfast love, this covenantal love, connect with God's faithfulness? What, what, do they, what do you think they might have in common? They're both, they're both never-ending, right? They're constant. Yep. Uh, any, other, any other ideas? Yeah, it describes his character, right? These, these actions come out from God's character because God can't act in any way that's not in accordance with his character. So we know that God is faithful. God is steadfast because he acts steadfastly. He acts faithfully, right? His, his covenantally promised love to his people will not leave them, right? He will never leave us nor forsake us, right? That's an expression of God's steadfast love, his, his faithfulness to his people that he will never let us go, that we are his adopted sons and daughters and he will never leave us nor forsake us. So we have content here of the praise but we also have timing involved, that we are to declare God's steadfast love in the morning and his faithfulness by night. This simply is part of the parallelism, which is a tool that's used in Psalms pretty often, where you say a thing and then you say it slightly differently in the next uh, part of the verse as a means of emphasis. So we're, we're saying here that actually our praise should be constant. Our praise isn't just left to the Lord's day, right? We are to live a, a, an entire life of praise, that our mornings and our nights are to be taken up with adoration of our God. It's not just something that happens once a week, but is ongoing and constant, sort of like how Paul talks about prayer, praying without ceasing, right? We're to be worshiping without ceasing, and certainly prayer is part of that. Sometimes singing is part of that. Sometimes there's a time not to sing, right? But worship takes many forms. Verse three, uh, let's talk about worship wars for a second. <laughs> I, think, I think, yeah, I will, thank you. Uh, I think w anybody who's been in the church for any period of time knows that there, there have been worship wars, uh, battling quote-unquote contemporary music against quote-unquote traditional music, whatever that means. Uh, most contemporary music seems pretty old to me, but that's, uh, that's a different topic. But um, did you know church history, not just within our century, but even into the past, there's a history of worship wars. Even within uh, particular Baptists, which sort of would be the, the stream that I would identify with, um, there was a parting of the ways in the 17th century between particular Baptists over the issue of whether to sing on the Lord's Day at all. In fact, it got kind of ugly. There were splits over this. Some people thought because the, the injunctions to sing only come from the Old Testament, that that has no place in New Testament worship. So there were splits over that. But there were even splits within the, the band of Baptists that wanted to sing on Sunday. They, they split over whether to sing with instruments or without instruments. So I, I don't want to minimize any of that, um, but I do think that this text certainly is clear enough in many other psalms that I, I think it's absolutely permissible to sing with instruments on, on Sunday. Um, in fact, there's a, let, me, let me give you a verse, a, a verse I like actually quite a lot. Isaiah 38.20 says pretty succinctly, the Lord will save me and we will play 
my music on stringed instruments all the days of our lives at the house of the Lord. So uh, music is one of the good and perfect gifts that come from above. And I think to, to use it uh, wisely uh, in the church is, is an absolutely good thing. Now, granted, we've, we've traded the lute and the harp and the lyre for uh, a piano, and I'm just fine with that. <laughs> it sounds good to me. So, uh, Verse 4. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands, I sing for joy. The psalmist is calling on us to sing God's praises and declare his steadfast love, but why would we do so? Well, it all comes back to joy. Um, we praise God for his wonderful works that bring us joy and gladness which puts me in mind of the Westminster Shorter Catechism that says, what is man's chief end? It's to glorify God and, can anybody finish it? And enjoy him forever. Right, so this is an expression of how we enjoy uh, our relationship to God, the, the expression of the joy that he brings us. So, so many of the Psalms and other places in the Old Testament uh, extol God for things like the crossing of the Red Sea, military successes as uh, the, the people of Israel were actually taking back uh, the Holy Land according to God's promise, um, his defense of the kingdom of Israel against other enemies uh, and other forces. Uh, what are some things now for us under the new covenant that we, that we praise God for? We've touched a couple of them, but uh, any, other, any other ideas of the subject of, of our praises uh, as Christians in the new covenant? For Jesus, right? For sending Jesus in the flesh and his work, not only in his earthly ministry, but his work on the cross, his death and resurrection, ascension. Yeah, beautiful subject for praise. Anyone else? The, the, the giving of the Holy Spirit, right? That's a, that's a huge part of our life and something we should be very much thankful for. Absolutely. I put down some pretty nerdy theological things myself thanking God for the double imputation, not only that my sins are put onto Jesus, but that Jesus' righteousness is gifted to me on credit, not by anything I've done to earn it, um, to thank God for the golden chain of redemption. Um, these, are, these are wonderful things to praise God for. So these works have made the psalmist glad. Sometimes there are works of God that maybe don't make us glad immediately, but we can say that we've been providentially guided through so many difficult trials, uh, horrible times in our lives, that when we look back on them, we can see God's guiding hand, his protection, his help all the way through those things. And those can bring us joy, even when we weren't maybe especially joyful when we were suffering those things. Any questions before we move to the next uh, stanza? All right, we'll move to the subject of worship, verses five through nine. So the psalmist praises and ponders here. How great are your works, O Lord? Your thoughts are very deep. This is certainly true, right? It's another understatement, right? Who, who, has, uh, who has been able to comprehend the mind of God? Certainly not me. Uh, if you say that you have, uh, we should probably have a talk because maybe you know... You know something uh, we don't, which I highly doubt. Scripture goes on in several different places about the depths of, of God's thought. Psalm 139, verses 17 to 18, says, How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. 
right? God's thoughts are numerous. They are, they're wide and our thoughts are few. Um, I spend a lot of time not thinking when I should be thinking. Uh, Isaiah 55 verses eight and nine say, for my thoughts, this is God speaking, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So God's thoughts are high and holy. And we don't often think holy thoughts, especially not provoked by our own selves. Uh, our thoughts are normally pretty, pretty base, pretty low in comparison. Uh, Psalm 36, verse 6 says, your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. His thoughts are deep. Our thoughts are often very shallow. And of course, Romans eleven thirty three sums the, this whole idea up. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. I got nothing to add to that. So let's go to verse six. The stupid man cannot know, the fool cannot understand this. So this verse, we're not talking about mental ability here, right? We're not, we're not being mean. We're not talking about somebody who doesn't have the ability to, to do math or, or string together a sentence. This is spiritual wisdom we're talking about here. This is spiritual maturity or knowledge, um, <clears throat> application of spiritual truth that we're talking about. I did a little word study on, on uh, what was rendered here as stupid, and the Hebrew word can actually mean brutish, not British, brutish, somebody who may be uh, a little bit blockheaded or stubborn, and I think that fits. I think that actually that fits quite a lot with our sinful condition, that even though there's all this evidence out here to the contrary, <clears throat> that God exists, and we're not hanging out here on our own, we are not our own God, we instead choose to believe the lie. You, you can think actually sometimes the, some of the smartest people in the world uh, sound completely immature if they begin to opine on spiritual matters uh, that they know nothing about. They might understand complicated uh, laws of physics or uh, the intricacy of uh, product design, uh, the ins and outs of the human psyche, but they don't know God. They haven't repented of their sins and been reconciled to their creator. So all they have is what they've learned about creation. Uh, let me read to you a, a passage that I think sums this idea up pretty well. 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 16. Yet among the mature do we impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we've received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. 
The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And that's the key to these spiritual truths by which we're made wise and not a, a, a fool. Right? The truths that we worship God for must be spiritually ascertained by having the mind of Christ. And we only have the mind of Christ by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. And until we have that special revelation of who God is, then we only have the dim light of natural revelation, simply only knowing that there is a God. And without saving grace, we wouldn't dream of praising God for anything. Verse 7, we're going to talk a little bit more about the wicked. I'm sure this is uh, probably a problem we've all noticed, but sometimes it seems like the worst of the sinners seem to go on and have great success while the righteous ones suffer. Uh, this is sort of the uh, only the good die young kind of paradox. And we may be tempted, uh, if we face that same kind of suffering, cry out to God, why do these evildoers go on so successfully while I sit here or my friend sits here under such heavy trials? But God has mercifully reminded us in Scripture time and time again that the evil will meet their end. And they will get what they deserve. But God is rich in mercy, especially to us, right? To, to his children, to Christians, to believers, those who've been saved in Christ. <clears throat> but God is even rich in grace toward unbelievers in giving them much time to pile up their sins, to pile up their hatred against him for the last day. And so when it comes to the last day, they will receive their just punishment. It's like the man who, uh, in, in Luke 12, in uh, the parable of Jesus, where uh, he's acquired so many things and he's building up for a good life. He's got so much grain, he's got to build more barns, and he's bragging to people, uh, soul, you have ample goods, uh, eat, drink, and be merry, let's relax, kind of a thing. And what does God say? Uh, this night your soul is required of you. There are many who are unrighteously focused on the here and now and pay no attention to any sort of idea that there's something after this life. Uh, they hate God. They hate Christ and, and disbelieve all these things because it would cut into the party. So the man in that, uh, in that parable is just as much of an idolater as anyone who might bow before a golden calf or even a real calf, a literal calf. And that's the heart, the true heart of, of a human being, is an idolater. So, we've, so now, okay, so in this song, we've seen sort of the darkness of the human heart. Let's look at verse 8. And you know, something that's interesting about the Psalms is oftentimes that middle verse it sort of becomes the, the high point, uh, the peak uh, thematically of the Psalm. So it's kind of like it, it builds to this crescendo point and then comes down. And I think that's certainly true of this. This verse 8 stuck in the middle of this verse is the, of the psalm is the high point of the psalm. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. God is on high forever, right? He's the uncreated one, never to be unseated by a rival, right? There are, there are no rivals to God, right? The living God, Yahweh of hosts, he destroys the wicked and he will never be destroyed. Neither will his church, his enemies are doomed, but he is glorified. 
In fact, his justice will be glorified ultimately uh, in, the in the punishment of every unrepentant sinner on the last day. The wicked live under his rule, which they hate with their entire being, but he will reign forever as surely as he's been reigning since the world was spoken into existence. This is almighty Yahweh we're talking about here. This isn't Dagon or Zeus or Allah, Baal, Artemis, or for the nerds out there, Cthulhu. These ideas, these are mere ideas of, of the human mind, right? There's nothing to them. We, we just spoke about this recently, even though there are some cool stories about Cthulhu you can read and enjoy, but uh, he, he's no God. Only Yahweh is God. And so these ideas of idolatrous men uh, are nothing and come to nothing, and those who worship them come to nothing. Verse 9, we're back to the enemies again. We've seen now an objective picture of God, high and holy, in verse 8. And we now have an objective picture of the, the block-headed man, the fool, the enemy of God. His enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. So not only will they perish, right? They'll go on to an eternal undoing, right? Uh, an eternal punishment. But I'm really interested by this idea that all evildoers will be scattered, right? God has always scattered his enemies. Uh, there's multiple passages in the Old Testament of the enemies of God being slaughtered or scattered. Um, but I'm also interested not only in who he scatters, but who does God gather, right? He gathers his flock, but that same flock begins as scattered enemies of God, in fact, we know this, this is a truth from Scripture, <clears throat> that God's people are across the entire globe, right? From every tribe, tongue, and nation. Uh, and these, these sinners scattered across the world are called into God's flock by the proclamation of the gospel. And that, this is the glorious gospel truth, that those who have been scattered can be gathered and are being gathered even now by the grace of God alone. I have one passage that kind of bring, brings these together. Uh, John 11, 47 to 52. You don't have to turn there, but um, the, the Pharisees and the chief priests are conspiring here. Uh, they gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, right? And this is ethnic Israel here, the nation of Israel, eth ethnic Israel. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Right, so those of us here who are not ethnically Jewish, we, we are those scattered people, and we've been gathered in by the Good Shepherd. All right, to the third section, the outcome of worship. You have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. Now, the horn is, a, is an Old Testament symbol of power and strength. Uh, actually, what's... This is kind of funny. 
if you have a, I don't know if anybody has a King James here today, but in the King James, uh, it says, and in some older texts as well, that uh, you have exalted my horn like that of the unicorn, which I think just is so entertaining. Now, you know, for us, we've turned the unicorn into a, a fantasy animal, but this, this was a translation thing from um, Hebrew into Greek, and the word, the Greek word was used for a one-horned animal, which in the Latin Vulgate translation out of the Greek turned in either into unicorn or uh, rhinoceros. But actually going back through uh, with more Hebrew scholarship, it was actually found out <clears throat> that this wild ox is the aurochs, uh, sort of a, a huge hulking um, ox uh, that was a wild animal uh, in this area of the Middle East and uh, is sort of the, uh, the predecessor of our current day livestock. So it's just kind of interesting. So a very big, hulking, powerful animal, perhaps more than we've even seen in our corner of the globe here. But what, what is this really talking about? This is talking about spiritual power, right? We're not all here uh, by the power of God built like bodybuilders, right? <laughs> We're talking about spiritual power here, not muscular power. Um, and this is a result of worship, right? We've been given, uh, we've been forgiven by God. We've been sent uh, into the world. We are gathered together and in worship, we are renewed and we are re-strengthened by God, having already been strengthened. This theme of power is also combined in this verse with the imagery of anointing with oil, and actually, this phrase was also a, sort of a puzzle to translators, but the purpose of this is about setting things aside as holy. So in Old Testament Israel, kings were anointed with oil, uh, as were priests. So in Leviticus 8, for example, we get the example of uh, Aaron and his sons being anointed with oil, set apart for their work in the temple. Uh, and in fact, even some uh, temple or tabernacle furniture was anointed with oil. Uh, so God has given his people not only strength, but he has set aside his people as holy. And these two images are what uh, David uses here um, for, uh, to communicate that idea. I actually have a couple New Testament uh, verses uh, that allude to these uh, two things. Uh, on the object of, or on the, uh, the concept of strength, 1 Peter 5.10 says, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And then uh, on the subject of anointing, we have 1 John 2, 26 through 27. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you received from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you, but his anointing teaches you about everything. It is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. So really this anointing kind of amounts to the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the Christian. 2 Corinthians 1, 19 through 22 says much the same. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. And this is why... Uh, th that is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us. 
and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as guarantee. And then in verse uh, 11 here, uh, again, uh, David, David is seeing the downfall of God's enemies. And God's enemies are David's enemies, right? Because David is, is God's son. So those who hate God also hate David. But he isn't, we have to make sure we understand, he isn't celebrating that evildoers are seeing their end uh, in any sort of bloodthirsty way. Um, not that he's delighting in other people's sufferings, but he is actually in seeing the justice of God being brought upon people who hate God, he is glorifying God's justice against sin. All right, and then into our last section, uh, the future for worship. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. <clears throat> so we have a contrast now that God's enemies perish and scatter, but we see here that the righteous flourish, and they flourish like a palm tree. And what's interesting is palm tree seeds can actually hang out for quite a long time if they aren't uh, in the ground. Uh, there are actually palm trees uh, in Israel right now, date palms, that were cultivated uh, from the first century. They were found in sealed containers, kind of like the, um, the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, and planted and are actually growing now. So there are people in our day eating dates from palm trees grown from first century seeds. Uh, I think that's a pretty fascinating uh, way to think about the, the evergreen nature of the Christian life, that no matter the, uh, the, the uh, um, situation that we may find ourselves in, uh, darkness or, or a travail, that uh, God is faithful to bring fruit um, wherever he's pleased. And then we not only have the, the palm tree, but the cedar in Lebanon, which is a, uh, a very rich image, right? And actually, I, just within the last couple weeks, uh, we read about these in 1 Kings during our scripture reading. Uh, cedars of Lebanon were used in the construction of Solomon's temple. So I, I find it kind of funny in a, uh, in a New Covenant way that we grow like cedars of Lebanon because we are the temple, right? There is no need for a building any longer because Christ has established his church, and that is where he is worshipped. <clears throat> and so the, the strength, the, uh, the evergreen nature of the church, which we're talking about in here ultimately, uh, finds a pretty good metaphor in the strong, tall cedars of Lebanon. And so not only uh, we, have the, uh, we have the palm tree, the cedar, they are planted in the house of the Lord and flourish in the courts of the Lord, right? We believers, we flourish nowhere else, right? We are, we've been saved by God, we are grown by God, and we will continue to grow as we are kept gracefully by him alone in relationship with him, that he's the one who establishes and upholds our lives, and it's his worship that we're eager to bring when we come together like we are today. Verse 14, there is no expiration date on the praises of Yahweh's people. Our thanksgivings that we bring <clears throat> will not rot or grow moldy. Not only do uh, they bear fruit in old age, uh, but I would say, as I was thinking about this verse, I think the oldest of the saints typically bear so much fruit 
that the younger of the saints are eager to fellowship with them and learn from them, right? Senior saints are a, a blessing, are a gift to the church. And, and we are, they themselves are blessed by God to, to have a level of maturity and experience in the Christian life to be able to pass that on to the younger generations in the church. So I, this, uh, reading this reminded me uh, to be so grateful and thankful to God for the gift of our senior saints. Now, whether you consider yourself in the senior category, I will leave that to you. But I appreciate you nonetheless. Because even as our physical bodies age and may cause us problems of certain kinds, <clears throat> the redeemed spirit of that same person is evergreen, intended by the perfect gardener. Then in our last verse, you know, whether the saints are young or old or somewhere in between, we are all primed to declare the uprightness of our God. We know too well what it is to be wicked, uh, to be foolish, to be sinful. And the longer we live awaiting our final glorification, we're certain of the more perfect and wonderful that we see God as being. He's our solid rock. It says, he is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. He is our sure grounding Sure grounding for palm trees to grow in, for cedars of Lebanon to grow in. And it's by his power that any of, of us produce fruit, by grace alone being more and more conformed to the image of Christ, our Savior, our great high priest, our brother like no other, our infinite king. Jesus has declared that the gates of hell will never prevail against the church. The church is vibrant. Uh, we just read... Uh, just a couple minutes ago, that the church, <clears throat> we as individual Christians are sealed with the Holy Spirit. We're eager to praise God and to serve our neighbors and to see the nations come pouring into his kingdom, bringing him all their praises for who he is and what he has done. And so the praise of this very same God revealed in the pages of scripture is who's called us here today, this morning, in fact, to worship him. By his grace, we will do that today. Uh, we'll be giving him thanks, and we'll sing praises, we'll read his word, we'll hear his word preached, we will pray, and we'll fellowship together. And these are all good things, not only good for us, right, to mutually encourage, but it's good to give praises to God and to give thanks to him, uh, especially on the Lord's Day, but every day as well. Any questions or comments? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask you to bless our time of worship this morning. <clears throat> We're eager to thank you for your, your many gifts to us and for strengthening us by your power, for calling us into fellowship with you, for saving our souls. So as we read and we sing and pray and listen this morning, we ask you to revive our hearts and remind us again you are sufficient for our every need and that we can rejoice in you and in your works. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.